What's shaping up to be one of the most divisive issues of the 2015 General Assembly wasn't even on the radar when the session began back in January. Indiana's so-called common construction wage has been around, in one form or another, since 1935, so the effort to do away with it came as a surprise to groups on both sides of the issue. Hi, I'm John Schwannis, and on this edition of Indiana Lawmakers, we'll do our best to bring you up to speed on the rapidly unfolding dispute. Here's Jill Sheridan of WFYI News with additional details. Right to work legislation rocked the Indiana State House in 2011 when union protesters descended here and House Democrats walked out for over a month. This session, the debate over a measure that could also affect skilled Hoosier workers is just heating up. Indiana's common construction wage, also known as a prevailing wage, sets pay rates for public works projects costing over $350,000, including jobs like schools and roads. A county committee sets the wages based on past jobs and what other skilled workers in the area are making. House Bill 1019 would repeal the 80-year-old common construction wage law, a move that opponents say will hurt the Hoosier construction market. Paul Nicewander, Indiana Mason Contractors Association Executive Director, says the current law is good for the Hoosier state. Studies show that states with a common construction wage law have more of their work completed by in-state contractors than states without a common construction wage law. In other words, if this law is repealed, we're going to see Indiana tax dollars being paid to out-of-state contractors to do uh, Indiana projects, and that's just not right. Supporters say House Bill 1019 could save taxpayers up to 20 percent on state-funded projects, but opponents say that's not possible because labor makes up only a quarter of overall costs. But J.R. Gaylor, president of Associated Builders and Contractors of Indiana, says the savings are still enough to justify a repeal. You know, why should they have to pay uh, an arbitrary premium when in fact the building is built just like in the private sector with trained people, safe people, bonding, but yet there's this premium of cost that's added to these projects. So that's the, that's the process that we think needs to be repealed. Though the issue may not be as volatile as right to work, more union protests could still be in store before the session wraps up. The common construction wage bill passed the House last month and was referred to a Senate committee. A hearing has yet to be scheduled. For Indiana Lawmakers, I'm Jill Sheridan. Thanks, Jill. Back in a moment with our weekly roundtable discussion. Indiana Lawmakers, from the State House to your house. Purdue researchers are at the top edge of computer technology, 3D design using hand gestures, extending mobile battery life, leading through innovation and job creation. Purdue Research Foundation. Contact innovation at prf.org. The concept of requiring contractors to pay locally set wages for work done on public projects is well established. Congress embraced the approach in 1931 with the passage of the Davis-Bacon Act, and by the late 1970s, all but a handful of states had adopted similar measures, sometimes referred to as little Davis-Bacon laws. In the 1980s, however, states began to repeal the wage guidelines. 32 states still have prevailing wage requirements on the books, but the measures are currently under attack in a number of states, including Michigan, Wisconsin, and West Virginia. Here to discuss the repeal debate now raging in Indiana are Republican Representative Jerry Torr of Carmel, the author of House Bill 1019, which would do away with the state's common construction wage. Democratic Representative David Nizgotsky of South Bend, co-owner of a third-generation plumbing business and a staunch supporter of organized labor. 
Kevin Brenniger, President and CEO of the Indiana Chamber of Commerce, which has added House Bill 1019 to its legislative agenda, and representing the Indiana Building Contractors Alliance, Jeff Hagerman, Chairman of the Hagerman Group, a 107-year-old privately owned construction company with offices in Fishers and Fort Wayne. And I thank you all for being here. And you're going to do most of the talking because my voice is going to give out at some point. Jerry Tor, let's start with you. Why now, after 80 years, this has been on the books? Well, uh, John, as you know, local government's under a lot of pressure with the tax caps, property tax caps. Um, they need to uh, scrape for every dime they have. We heard testimony in committee that uh, it's not that if, if they're able to save money by not having to adopt a common construction wage, it's not that uh, the, that money will be uh, saved so much as they'll be able to do more projects because they have more projects currently than they can afford at, lo uh, at many local governments. And the figure that you've used on numerous occasions this session is 10 to 20 percent. Yeah, is that yeah the experience we see from what's happened, as you mentioned, other states have repealed, Tennessee repealed uh, a few years ago. Uh, over 10 years ago, Ohio repealed its prevailing wage for public school projects. And so we've got some places to look and see what the experience has been. Uh, and uh, they, uh, that's just uh, been, the, been the norm is somewhere between 10 and 20 percent just because of more competition, more free open market bidding. And I'm guessing we're going to have a battle of, of numbers and statistics here because uh, uh, people who are opposed to this, David Nieskotsky, are saying it could be a hit as much as I've seen $21 million in terms of uh, a negative impact on local coffers, the very people, Jerry Tor, that you say need the, uh, the extra help. Which is it? Yes, thanks. Uh, I think it could actually be a bigger hit than that because right now what the common construction wage does, it, it employs local contractors, local employees, and puts them to work in local communities, which has them spend their dollars in local communities. Now, if that doesn't take place and you go just simply for the lowest bid and you don't have uh, a prevailing wage that is set in accordance to a local community, then you have a very strong chance you're going to have out-of-state contractors bidding for these jobs. <clears throat> in many cases, when they get those kind of jobs, what you start to see also is the misclassification of employees. So if you've got out-of-state contractors bringing out-of-state employees on the job, uh, the contractors aren't paying taxes. In many cases, the employees are going to go back home, and they're not going to pay those taxes. You've got nothing that's been left within that local community, and in the end, well, presumably the, they'll pay the taxes. But in presumably, their own but in many cases, well, in many cases that doesn't happen because sometimes they don't even realize that they're getting 1099, and at the end of the year they realize, oh my gosh, taxes are upon me. So the, the bottom line is there is a loss of tax revenue to the state and to that local community. And in the end, when they talk about uh, the argument on the other side is it's going to benefit taxpayers, I think taxpayers are going to be the ones left holding the bag, and it's going to be the empty bag at the end of the day. You mentioned the local uh, predominance of local individuals in these projects. Ninety percent, is that a uh, figure that you... Uh, use I've seen that uh, bandied about currently. It's, it's yes. ninety percent in-state labor, and that can vary. That's something that's very interesting that you can talk about because in a lot of these projects, people will allow project labor agreements, and there's been a lot of talk about that. That also, uh, this is an aspect that is very very interesting because that's where it really takes into the real nuts and bolts. It's it's not a union or non-union issue whatsoever. On these project labor agreements, whatever agreement is struck. Uh, for instance, the, the, the indie projects like the Eskenazi Hospital, Lucas Oil, on those projects, 
40% of the contractors on those jobs were non-union contractors, and those contractors also are able to utilize their own workforces. So you, it's agreement, whatever you come up with to do. The bottom line is it is local wages that are prevalent in, in that area or the dollars that are spent on those projects. <clears throat> Well, uh, Kevin, actually, the, uh, all right, go ahead, and then we're going to let our other guests jump in here, but there, go ahead. There really is nothing in the common construction wage uh, system that guarantees or even begins to ensure that it's going to be local labor, and it's yeah. not always. That doesn't happen. Uh, and the concerns about the misclassification and all that, again, that has not been the experience in the other states. Do you, the 90% figure, is that a, uh, do you buy that, though, that to date we generally see about 90% of, of workers on these projects that go through uh, the common wage uh, establishment of the, those uh, those wage scales, that they are in fact in-state workers? Is that? Oh, I suspect uh, that's that is, probably that true. Is probably yeah. true. Yeah. When you have a lot of projects like the Lucas Oil and Eskenazi, a lot of things going on, uh, it, it, there aren't enough workers and so they're always going to, when you got that kind of work going on, there will always be people coming from out of state to work on them. Well, Kevin Branniger, this is part of your uh, organization's agenda now, but it, it wasn't uh, as of a few months ago. Well, this no, well is, that's not correct, John. Well, you've always, we, let's we, say you've we've always... Had a, we've had a position calling for the repeal of this law for... Since you were born. 50 you came years, out of before the Before I came uh, to the chamber. That, but uh, I mean, but this at is least, not something you thought years. was, was going to happen this yeah. session, uh, but, right? No, but, but we've always, because we have it as a position, uh, if an issue comes up, then, then we move on it. To touch on this out-of-state worker issue, it, it's curious to me that the concern about um, if we have open and competitive bidding rather than government-mandated uh, minimum wages to be paid on, on public construction projects uh, that out-of-state people will come in. Uh, when we had, eight to ten years ago, the three massive projects here in Indianapolis, we had just the opposite happen. We had Lucas Oil Stadium. Uh, the convention center expansion and the construction of the new Indianapolis airport, they, and those were all set at the union wage with project labor agreements that limited the ability of non-union uh, contractors to participate other than on the very small parts because there was, a, I think, a $250,000 limit. Uh, they ran out of union workers, and instead of going to skilled, able-bodied Hoosiers who could have were here and could have worked on those projects, they brought in some 4,000 union workers from Illinois, Ohio, and Kentucky, and they took our tax dollars back to their state and spent them. Uh, Jeff Hagerman, you're the I fourth generation of, uh, of your company's uh, leadership. Uh, you do this every day. Right. Uh, some people might say, gee, why would he be on, on the, uh, the side opposing this? But you're worried about your workforce, I presume. Workforce development is a big thing, and I'm going to touch yeah. on that. I'd like to, to comment on Kevin's uh, facts. The 4,000, I don't know where that number came from. I was a part of all of the projects that Kevin mm -hmm. just mentioned, and the majority of the folks on those projects were Hoosier folks, and quite a few, as, as David mentioned, were non-union entities because they do have the right mm -hmm. to be a part of PLA projects. Some chose not to because they decided to fight the PLA arrangement. That's their choice. That's a business choice that they made, uh, which is up to them. That's up to but them. But you don't buy the, the notion that there is a, a limited supply or that, absolutely there, that there is uh, the, 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 almost a need to go outside the, the, the challenge we have, from my perspective, the challenge we have moving forward, if this 
if this law gets uh, repealed, is that we have set a precedent with this, within this state. Uh, we have all we already have and have for 10 to 15 years struggled to find people to join our workforces at the skilled level. Um, this to me is not a union non-union thing. It never has it's, been it's a not, union non-union thing. Either. I think this is going to impact all Indiana contractors significantly from from a, from a few standpoints. Number one, um, they're going to again. We've we've set a precedent with respect to training and and developing skilled labor, union side through the apprentice program, uh, as well as uh, the non-union sides that that I know companies that spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to improve their skilled workforce. And, is it forty-two and, million dollars a year? Is the figure I've seen? Forty-two million dollars is what the apprenticeship. Programs. Yeah, and then those people also obtain a, a two-year degree from Ivy Tech once they graduate. So we're improving the lives of, of Hoosiers who are going to stay, work, pay taxes within within the state. Does that program disappear? I mean, that apprenticeship, you just had your 10,000th graduate, I think, yeah. uh, at the State House rally uh, yeah. last week. Does that program disappear? You know, I, 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 go ahead. I was going to say, I think that's a very good point because right now with the prevailing wages, contractors are the ones that are paying for the apprenticeship programs, they're paying for the extra benefits, they're paying for health insurance. All those things are covered within those wages. And as you said, $42 million on an annual basis are put into training programs. Those dollars all come from prevailing wages. Now, if you do away with that, and, and you're going to go simply to what they're referring as a lowest bid job, there's no talk about anyone that's going to put forth any dollars for training. There's no talk whatsoever and, about... And, and this is what I love about this. And, and I know there's been a lot of mention about free market. And, and we do not live in a free market society in Indiana today. I mean, the public bid laws restrict the free market opportunities. I mean, if you are able to provide a bond and you are able to provide and fill out the paperwork appropriately, I don't care where you are in this country... You can do work in Indiana. Now, if you appeal this law, and I've, I've seen it across the country, there are a lot of firms out there that pay significantly less than not only the union rates, but the non-union rates within this state. So all construction companies are going to suffer when the out-of-state influx comes in and again, I, as I mentioned before, one of the biggest issues for me, workforce development. Well, respond to that. I mean, does well, workforce development go out the window? You know, I, I met with some union contractors at Jeff wasn't there, but some of his uh, brethren last fall and discussed this issue. And I asked him, how much of your work is uh, private work? And it varied, but it was among them uh, from about 50% to 85. Um, and they said, well, private doesn't have to take the lowest bid, but let's face it. Business people that are building buildings for their business are, are usually pretty cost-conscious. Uh, even in Indiana, where, uh, in a, like in Hamilton County, where they typically adopt the non-union wage with the wage panel, yet there's still union contractors that are able to win those bids, and I think that'll continue. And, John, something else I think is important to uh, understand is that, that they also have this, the unions have this uh, market recovery fund, some of them call it, it goes by different names, but on public projects, the workers pay a, f uh, a last contract I saw it was around a quarter, uh, but they pay into a fund that uh, the union uh, collects, and then when a union contractor is bidding on a private job and it has stiff competition from a non-union contractor, 
the union will allow, allow those funds to be used to subsidize the bid. So you literally have taxpayers on public projects subsidizing private uh, construction projects. That's absolutely not true. That's not true. That is, th th those and I ways. deal with market recovery on, on a lot of <laughs> I, projects. That's I, not. I, I've had contractors tell but me. But you that. don't understand no. the concept, I don't think. That's right. If, if well, anything to the, those dollars are dollars that are given by those employees and those employees in a lot of cases they weren't making prevailing wages at the time it may have been on any other host of jobs they made it's off their salary those employees yeah. have said you know what we're going to contribute a little bit and we're going to put back into the system it's got nothing to do with other taxpayers dollars right. which which i think raises a really good point here when you talk about things are going to remain they get used on non or, or on private projects right if on any projects whatsoever on a person's wage, that doesn't mean they're always getting prevailing wages. If they're just getting normal wages and they decide that out of my uh, hourly taken, I want to put in a quarter of every hour into that to help fund our whole system, that, that's not a way to outbid or uh, outclass uh, uh, another bidder. That's not what that's about. Well, that's what, what, what I do want to raise here, though, when you talk about you don't think it's going to hurt, what I think is going to happen ultimately, because uh, if you uh, hopefully you won't dis disagree, our nonpartisan arm, uh, Legislative Services, has even said, right now if you're going to bid these projects, it's going to be really hard to get the winning bid unless you lower wages. Lowering wages is the one true way you're going to try to get these, lowering your savings. And if you do that, you're going to bring in less tax dollars in the state of Indiana. And LSA even suggests that if that happens, that you'll need less tax revenue coming into the state of Indiana. So what happens in that case? Where do we go? Not, not me. Well, presumably but, but, you would, but, would agree but where that there are wages, come? right? That's the savings. Well, well, but where do those dollars come from? They come from tax dollars because these are publicly funded projects. So every dollar spent above market price is a, is a do dollar, a tax dollar, that another business doesn't have to pay their people uh, salary, benefits, health care, it's another so dollar it's a wash. Uh, but what if they, it yeah. does go out of state? And if they go, if the workforce well, comes in, then it doesn't. I spent wash, 12 right? years on the Noblesville School Board. And during that time, I was the owner's representative on the common construction wage hearings. It was a rapidly growing school district. We did a lot of projects during that time. And we chose to set the minimum to be paid at the ABC rate so that we would have more fair, open, and competitive bidding. And during that, those 12 years, literally half of the projects were won by union contractors, the other half by non-union contractors, and many times the winning bidder uh, was paying wages, at least for some of the categories, that was higher than the minimum that had been established through the wage setting process. The other thing is we talk about what's the, you know, the common wage, like it's some magical thing. Earlier this year, Allen County and Fort Wayne Community Schools had wage-setting hearings on projects they were doing on the exact same day. Allen County chose the, the ABC rates, Fort Wayne Community Schools chose uh, the FLCIO rates, and the differences in some case, in, well, for electricians it was 56%, for uh, unskilled millwrights it was 106%. So which one is really the so common which, wage? Which one that didn't community? follow the state statute? I mean, you got five different. Five well, different the, well, I think right? the courts so have determined, from my, from my experience, that the common wage is whatever the committee uh, says it is, and that that's been backed up. And and what 
what gets established is totally based on who's appointed to that committee. That's and, right. And, and, and our, own, on our only position, as I can finish, and eight, oh, is um, that we don't set minimum prices to be paid on construction materials, on bus driver salaries, on computers, or even paper clips. So why, why, why do we do it on construction labor? And, and we're all for the training program. We recognize the training needs, and these are outstanding programs. I've gone to visit them. But the question is, how should they be paid for? And exactly. I guess we're, su or, and we're suggesting that from. maybe they shouldn't be paid for by overcharging taxpayers on public construction projects, but we ought to deal with it straight if up those through tax the state budget. Come back into the local communities and support those local communities, those are not taxpayers. But will those tax dollars be better spent by leaving them in the taxpayers' pockets rather than having them pay above market prices? For the public construction the economies projects. grow so, by have a flo having a flourishing of dollars within those economies, and when those economies are but those flowing dollars with a are lot of dollars in those communities. I, I think, I, in my opinion, I think we're skewing, we're skewing these dollars. I mean, we're skewing the percentages. I think these studies that have been thrown out are inconclusive. They've all been proven to be inconclusive from these other states. And if you go and actually <laughs> visit some of these other states, nobody's looking at the true life cycle cost of these buildings mm -hmm. when you have lower skilled people building these buildings and you will have that but in and, Ohio but, quality went up but they did a survey five years after their repeal uh, and there was a slight increase in no. the percentage. aren't there other statistics that show Absolutely. workplace uh, mishaps go up as well and and, 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 and safety issues and one last thing I'm, I'm saying I'm sorry I know we're tight on time here how are we going to recruit people into Indiana Hoosiers how are we going to recruit those people to join our workforce and help us build our buildings? If we're, having, we're, having a tough, we're having a tough, tough time now. Mm -hmm. If you, you know that. offer them a decent wage for a hard day's work. Well, but something like 88% of all of the construction workers in Indiana are not union, yeah. and so that somehow they're getting recruited. But I think they're going to lose their work. Once this is enacted and signed, we'll all come back here and see who was right, and we'll... Uh, Line up your statistics and yours, and we'll, we'll see who was right and who was wrong. Obviously, it's an important issue, one about which many people feel very strongly. And I thank you all for being here to uh, share some insight that you all have on this issue in the uh, uh, final weeks here of the session. Promises to be interesting. Again, my guests have been Republican Representative Jerry Tor of Carmel, Democratic Representative David Nizgotsky of South Bend, Kevin Brenniger, President and CEO of the Indiana Chamber of Commerce, and Jeff Hagerman, chairman of the Hagerman Group Construction Company. The subject is school funding. Should the money follow the student or follow the need? We'll take a course on the education budget on the next Indiana Lawmakers. Time now for our weekly discussion with Ed Feigenbaum, publisher of the newsletter Indiana Legislative Insight. Ed, let me ask you this first question that I asked the panel. Why now after 80 years? Well, because it's been 80 years. We're, we're doing all the 80-year things this year. It must be the, the, some kind of circadian cycle or something. We've, we've got the Sunday alcohol sales after 80 years. We've got this coming up, and we've got the reassessment of the, the riverboat laws after a, a couple of decades of experience. It seems like all of a sudden we're, we're looking at things that we haven't reassessed in quite a bit, and this is, is one of them. As to the specific timing, I don't think anybody really knows why that's the, the you case. You think it's more just a reassessment, or do you think it's the fact that uh, people look at the supermajorities in both the House and the Senate and say, if we want to get this done, this is the time. Is it just a matter of pure politics well, and numbers? Have, 
This could have been done a few years ago as well under the, the super majorities when they did right to work. They could have wrapped it up in, in one big package with a nice little red, red bow, but they didn't. And in fact, this year you, you saw in the House in particular a number of Republicans who, who felt compelled to vote with their districts, particularly up in Lake County, northwest Indiana. And they voted um, against there were 13 the Republican of them, right? package. They, they split with their. Uh, there their were caucus. a number, so um, it's not necessarily the the supermajority because a lot of the the newer Republicans, the the new Republicans from Lake County, didn't support the majority of the caucus on this particular issue. How does this end up this session? Well, I think what you may want to do is is take a look at at the bill that was originally introduced in the House by Representative Dave Ober and didn't get a hearing that set a limit on some of the, the projects that would, would uh, come under the jurisdiction of, of the Common Construction Wage Bill, these agreements. And right now, you know, you've, you've got projects that are 350000 or over that are subject to the, the law. And I think maybe you'll see that bumped up a little bit more to the over-like limits of a million dollars. I think people will, will end up being you know, happy about the result there and, and willing to compromise at, at so that So you level. think this will end up in compromise, even though the numbers are there to get this done, apparently? Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it looks like we're, we're avoiding a summer study that some people wanted and others didn't, and it looks like we will end up with something, but with, with a much higher level than we've got today, and, and people, I think, on both sides will walk away relatively satisfied. And political fallout, does this mobilize uh, organized labor? Well, I, th I think that certainly to, to the extent that, that they want to mobilize their members, they'll be able to use this as, as something to get them going. But I don't think that it, it's going to be a, a real catalyst statewide, and it, it's certainly not going to be something that, that's going to hurt the Republicans in general either. Very good, Ed. As always, appreciate your insight. For more information, episode streams, and extra content, visit us on the web at wfyi.org lawmakers. Well, that concludes another edition of Indiana Lawmakers. I'm John Schwannis, and on behalf of WFYI Public Media and Indiana's other public broadcasting stations, I thank you for joining us, and I invite you to visit WFYI.org for exclusive web content, including the best advice our guests have ever received. Until next week, take care. Purdue researchers are finding new ways to treat cancer, provide drug-free therapies, advance wound repairs, reduce chronic illness symptoms, helping people, changing lives. Purdue Research Foundation. Contact innovation at prf.org.